Welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to finish his dissertation and then get a job. This episode marks the beginning of a new series for Making of a Historian. This semester, I will be teaching my own class. It's, you know, mine from top to bottom. The first time I've ever done something like this. I made the syllabus. I'm lecturing. I'm grading the students. I'm, you know, deciding who gets A's and who gets F's. Every single thing of the class is mine. It's a great opportunity. And in this podcast, we will be following along with the reading list of the class. And I'm just going to kind of try out my ideas for size, see how the narratives work, practice a little of what I want to say in the classroom. The class is on the history of the Anthropocene, and this episode we're going to be discussing what the Anthropocene is. Uh, but so you don't feel too lost, I'm just going to give a little canned answer before we actually get into the nitty-gritty of it. The Anthropocene is an idea that's been bouncing around geological and uh, e environmental circles for maybe the past 10 years or so, and it argues that the extent of the human impact on the climate, on the world, means that right now we live in a new geological age. We are no longer in the Holocene Epoch, but instead we are in the Anthropocene Epoch. Somewhere along the line in human history, we crossed a line. And in this episode, we will be talking about that line, where to draw it, and what that means. So to talk about that line, let's actually look at the line that separates different geological epochs. And to talk about this, we need to understand a little bit of how geologists read rock. And let's talk about a particular slab of rock. If you happen to go to El Kef, Tunisia, you might see something very special. Take the exit for Tajarine, I, I can't pronounce that well. Any Tunisians out there, please uh, email and yell at me. Uh, take the exit for Tajarine and go towards the Hammam Malek. Um, about three kilometers from the road sign to the Hammam, you will see a small village and an artificial lake. There you will find a valley. If you walk down this valley, you will see a slab of rock, a rock face that shows the different sediments from different periods. And in that rock face, you will find a golden colored spike jammed right at a reddish layer. This reddish layer, if you look close to it, it's a couple centimeters thick, you would see that it has, quote, geochemical anomalies, spherules, and shocked quartz. This golden spike tells a story. Above the golden spike is rock from the Paleogene period, the period of geological history when mammals replaced dinosaurs, when the earth cooled and tropical plants retreated to around the equator. Below this golden spike is rock from the Cetaceous period, the time of dinosaurs, of great ferns, of, you know, those massive flying weird reptiles. And right at this spike, in that reddish layer of rock full of geochemical anomalies, you find a band of iridium. This band of iridium can be found almost anywhere on Earth when you get this deep. And it tells us what happened to mark the boundary between the Paleogene period 
and the Cetaceous. We think an asteroid hit Earth, and this thin layer of iridium is the deposited dust from that asteroid. And this golden spike, above it, two-thirds of all of the plant and animal species that lived below the spike are gone. This golden spike is a way of telling us that the world changed. The golden spike is called a global boundary stratotype section. It's a reference point that tells us when geological ages changed. They're all over the world marking particular boundaries between particular geological eras, and most of them are not as dramatic as the, as the spike in El Kef, Tunisia. Now, I want us to think about our golden spike. Think about humanity. Not about, you know, the small dramas of your own life and not even about the big dramas of our politics right now. Don't think about, you know, the Trump op-ed or whatever things are happening with the Mueller investigation or whatever momentary drama is uh, 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 capturing your attention. But instead, think about humans the same way we might think about dinosaurs. Think about us from an incredibly big scale, the scale of thousands or millions of years. How will we show up in this archive of rock? What will be our golden spike? To understand this question, people have been playing with the idea that we are in the Anthropocene, that we are right at the moment of a new golden spike. We live above a boundary that most of human history lived below. The idea is that we are no longer in the Holocene period, but the Anthropocene period, or perhaps even the Anthropocene epoch. Perhaps we have moved into a completely new period of the Earth's history. But where exactly is that golden spike? Where do we begin? Where does the Anthropocene actually take over from the Holocene. Our choice of beginning, and because it's a choice, because this golden spike is not some sort of natural thing that, you know, God planted in the earth, but a human decision. It took a group of people arguing about different layers of rocks and what they mean to plant that golden spike in El Kef, Tunisia, and it will take the same sort of, you know, arguing committees to decide whether we merit a golden spike today. But let's think about what goes into that. The beginning of this story tells us what the story holds. It tells us what matters, what was the big turning point, and it might tell us a little bit about what the end of the story is or about what the middle of that story is. So let's go through some possible starting moments of, of human history that might be as big as the meteorite that killed off the dinosaurs. The first big moment that people talk about that might be a starting moment for the Anthropocene happens a really long time ago. Well, not really long in geological time, but really long in human time, um, starting at about 50,000 years ago and uh, ending about 10,000 years ago. This is the pattern of megafauna extinction. So pretty much every single place that humans went as humans seeped all over the globe, they were followed by an extinction of the large mammals that used to live in the places where humans lived. 
about half of the world's large animals went extinct in this period. The further from Africa that you get, the further away from humans' ancestral home, the more mammals died when humans expanded. Um, in Africa, uh, after humans, about 18% of mammals went extinct. In Eurasia, uh, that increases to 26%, almost a quarter, a little over a quarter of all of the large mammals died when humans got there. If you get to North America, 72% of the mammals died after humans get there. South America, that increases to 83%, and it reaches a high in Australia, the last big place that humans settled, to 88%. It seems that when humans get to a place, we are followed by extinction. But this is not necessarily a good golden spike for a number of reasons. The first is that it takes a really long time. You know, this boundary is about 40,000 years, which is still, a, you know, a not an inconceivable amount of time in geological perspective. You can't just find a layer of rock that's the same everywhere on Earth and jam a golden spike into it that represents when humans you know, oozed over the planet. And it also seems to be, frankly, you know, even though it's a rather large extinction, perhaps well within the range of variability that you might find in a particular geological uh, uh, epoch. Another big moment that uh, some people have identified as a start of the Anthropocene comes from farming the birth of agriculture. The first uh, rudimentary farming happened about 11,000 years ago in Southwest Asia, uh, but it really jacked up in intensity 8,000 years ago and especially kicked into high gear 5,000 years ago with the development of wet rice agriculture. You can see this in the geological record through how farming replaces land use. You get woods, and forests and savannas being converted to grazing land and farms. You see the beginnings of settled communities. And it also has, you know, deeper and stranger effects as well. This replacement of grassland with farmland uh, and woodland with farmland means that more carbon is being released up into the atmosphere as you're taking all of those carbon storing trunks and burning them and, you know, swapping them out for, you know, relatively non-carbon sequestering uh, fields of wheat and rice. Um, in fact, people uh, suggest that this, uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 removal of carbon sequester might have led to a delay of a ice age, that we might have been headed towards an ice age before the advent of farming. Um, we were in an interglacial period. Interglacial periods are what we're in now. Uh, they tend to be, frankly, relatively short, and we're due for one. One should be coming, but the argument is actually we have uh, delayed the uh, uh, glacial period because we have perhaps freed up a bunch of carbon that would have otherwise been trapped in trees. Now, again, this marker has a number of problems, uh, very similar to the problem with a megafauna extinction. It kind of happens too slowly. It doesn't seem to be a particularly global event. Instead, it kind of uh, uh, flows out over, over the world in kind of a slow rollout as wheat and rice and corn agriculture uh, reach new areas. Now, 
it does offer something different from megathon extinctions that's curious to think about. Because the advent of farming in a number of books, uh, uh, I think uh, James C. Scott's recent book, Against the Grain, really shows this uh, in quite interesting detail. In a number of thinkers, agriculture is the beginning of civilization. It's the beginning of settled life. It marks for good and bad everything that city-based government, highly complex societies give to the world. For Scott and for others, it's the beginning of oppression. It's the change from egalitarian hunter-gatherer societies where even though humans barely eked out a living and had to suffer through a lot of infant death and struggle and tooth loss and stuff like that, to a stage of human society where, although we might have been more protected and pastoralized and domesticated, we were under the thumb of authoritarian or despotic regimes. So we get a more human history if we choose farming as the beginning of the Anthropocene. I, I don't like this moment myself, because I think that if we choose farming, it suggests that the entire human project is somehow complicit in environmental destruction, that there's nothing about being a human that does not destroy irrevocably the world that we live in, that is not attended with oppression. I think it's a deeply pessimistic marker, and it really doesn't suggest any productive politics that we can do to, you know, mitigate the problems that we face. It just suggests, hey, look, all civilization, all human life is attended with extinction and oppression and inequality. It might be true, but I, I think it, it I, I don't want it to be true. I'd, I'd rather choose something else. The next possible moment for the beginning of the Anthropocene happens in much more recent history, and it is uh, what is called often the Columbian Exchange. Uh, it's the encounter between the new and the old worlds between Eurasia and Africa on the one hand and the Americas on the other. Uh, it's sometimes called the reunion of Pangaea, the great megacontinent that split apart uh, millions of years ago, uh, allowing for divergent evolution of many different plants and animals here uh, in the 15th and 16th centuries was reunited bringing microbes and plants and animals and ideas and things and cultures into contact that had not been in contact for a very long time before. The most obvious indicator of this, of course, would be the spread of new plants and animals. You'd look in Eurasian soils and see uh, corn and potatoes and weird microbes that come from the Americas. And you'd look in the American uh, 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 sediments, and you would see wheat and horses and pigs. But there's also a deeper effect that would be much more widely spread. Before contact, the Americas were filled with densely populated, advanced agricultural societies. The land was filled with farms and cities and settlements. And with the arrival of Europeans, many of these advanced agricultural societies collapsed. This led farmland to turn into woodland uh, and savanna and forest once again. It's kind of a 
opposite of what happened with the advent of farming uh, 5,000 years ago. But this had an effect on the world's climate. So much carbon got sequestered in the uh, regrowth of all of these forests, uh, about 5 to 40 petagrams of carbon, that you can see it in the atmospheric composition uh, of the Earth that we can read in, in ice cores. Uh, it's been proposed uh, as an orbis spike by Lewis and Maslin, a decline in the atmospheric carbon that represents the beginning of a connected world. And this is a great moment for a golden spike because we can see it all over the earth. It happens rather dramatic, dramatically over a, a, a only a hundred years or so. And it is very easy to connect it with a human story. This is not something that is so distant and so essential to what humans are today, like farming, that it seems, you know, baked in and, and, and predetermined. This is something that we can understand human motivations as causing. We can understand Christopher Columbus uh, going off in search of spices to get rich and then stumbling across uh, the New World accidentally and exploiting it because that's what you know, people of his time and place did. We can understand the motivations. We can understand the processes. We can see rather directly in the way that the world is organized today how those decisions uh, 500 years ago uh, are still alive. Another turning point that is uh, quite popular comes with the Industrial Revolution, which we've talked quite a bit about on this podcast before. Over the 18th century, people in Britain slowly learned to take the heat energy from fossil fuels like coal and turn it into other kinds of energy, particularly mechanical energy. This made artificial heat energy from mineral sources much more powerful and potent and easy to use. Um, now, this is a little bit more difficult to date exactly because people had been using coal for a long time before this. People knew that it warmed them, and it was often a heating source of last resort. Uh, in China's Song Dynasty in the 11th century, um, people used, in fact, more coal than was used in Europe in 1700. They just just petered out. This coal use petered out and never caught on for as long, and they didn't develop the use of mechanical energy that would be the key driver of development. Now, it's not just this new energy source that really matters. It's not the breaking of the energy bottleneck of an advanced organic economy that makes this important. It's also a story of the increase in a human Power, and I mean this really literally. The power available to human societies uh, massively increased once we were able to unlock the fossilized sunlight that is in coal and other carbon sources. It allowed massive building projects like skyscrapers and harbor dredging and roads and transportation because the amount of power available in concentrated doses was vastly increased. I mean, imagine digging a foundation if you just had horses. Even the best fed horses could not do the work of, you know, a single bulldozer or earth mover, and that power allowed for a vastly expanded reach of human governments and settlements. Now, this certainly, the Industrial Revolution certainly will lead to changes in the archive of rock 
beneath our feet. Uh, you can see, for example, fly ash from coal burning found speckled in the rock layers. There's also obviously a slow spike of carbon in the air. But importantly, this is a slow growth. It might not be the best place for a golden spike because the uptick in carbon burning and fossil fuel burning happened, you know, at, at a relatively slow pace. Um, in 1750, uh, the amount of carbon dioxide in the air was 277 parts per million. That reached 283 parts per million 50 years later in 1800. And 1825, when the Industrial Revolution is really kicking off, it only reaches 284 parts per million. This is not necessarily something that future geologists would be able to read. But there's more, of course. There's more than simply the slow spike of carbon. There's the telltale signs of mining operations. You could see our mines and quarries. And you could also see what they call now technofossils of degraded machines. You could see in the rock archive our gears and our glass and our tools and our earth dredgers and our steam engines just as people today might find Tyrannosaurus rex bones and other sorts of, of fossilized uh, creatures. Finally, our last potential golden spike comes in 1945, because in 1945, humans did something that will definitely clearly mark our age geologically for thousands, if not millions, of years to come. We started to blow up nukes. The first atomic bomb detonations led to a spike in the carbon-14 all over the Earth, which will be preserved in tree rings forever. And after 1945, this is a good indicator, because after 1945, we have what people call the Great Acceleration, the advance of nearly every single indicator of human life hitting a massive, massive increase. Um, we have widespread urbanization after 1945, widespread population growth, huge spikes in energy use. We have what's called the Green Revolution, where people using the Haber-Bosch process, you know, make artificial nitrogen fertilizer, which allows everybody to be better fed. You have the increase in roads and in infrastructure and in war. Every single indicator that you could possibly think of increases after 1945. And so this is a great golden spike because just like the iridium spike, we have a clear band of earth, a clear band of sediment that shows us that something dramatically has changed. And then after that, we have an uptick in a ton of different metrics. So there's a lot of different arguments about when we might want to start the Anthropocene. There are a lot of different beginning points. And these beginning points matter because they tell a story of what happened, of what we think is responsible for the change and how we might imagine a future with the big change. If you take uh, something very early like the megafauna extinctions or, or, or the development of farming as the beginning of the Anthropocene, you're kind of saying that humans are born to kill, that we are evolved ecosystem destroyers, that we are a plague on the planet, that there is no decision that we could make to turn back our, our changes in the planet, and we're pretty much doomed, that we are the asteroid, and we cannot change our course any more than the asteroid could. 
If you take something more recent, like 1945, as as your beginning of the Anthropocene, you're, you're making a claim that it is a very particular modern development of uh, internal combustion engines and international governments and world trade and science and technology that is causing the change that we see around us. And it provokes a similar set of responses. If it is a world financial system and a world government and a world scientific apparatus that caused the Anthropocene, then it is the same world government system and world trade system and world scientific system that can fix it. And if you take a moment in the middle, like the Columbian Exchange, as your beginning of the Anthropocene, you were arguing that it is a longer-term story that still has political implications, that's still about what people do, that's still about choices that individual people made, but that had knock-on effects to other domains. Now, why does this matter? Why should we be arguing about the beginning of the Anthropocene? What does it let us do? Well, for a long time, maybe the past 100 or 150 years or so, people have noticed that people are changing the world to the extent that future geologists would be able to see it. Um, in the 1920s, there was a idea among some weird geologists uh, uh, in the you know that 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 the meeting of human consciousness and the environment was changing the biosphere, the circle of life, into the newosphere, the circle of mind or the circle of consciousness, that something was happening with the advance of science and technology that was changing the face of the earth. Now, this was pretty marginal in the 1920s, and it took uh, until the 1970s when people started to have a greater realization of human humanity as a species having an effect on the environment. There's three big moments of this. There's the discovery of the hole in the ozone layer above Antarctica that was eventually linked to the use of CFCs. And this made people realize that, you know, individual consumer behavior, your use of, 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 of spray hair, of, of, of hairspray to, to, to look nice in the morning could have in aggregate an actual marked effect on the earth. This massive ozone layer hole over Antarctica that, you know, gave Australian people skin cancer. Another big moment is far more cultural, far more squishy. It was the first photo taken from the orbit of the moon that showed the earth as just a a ball in 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 the darkness uh, the the photo known as earthrise and amazingly as it might seem today when we're very used to this image of of that blue marble floating out in the blackness the earthrise photo made people stop and think it made people recognize that the earth was all we have that it was alone out there that it was the place where we all lived um, in 1972, this was followed by uh, an influential publication of a book called Limits to Growth by the Club of Rome that argued that the massive material abundance of the 20th century could not be continued. And that leads us to today, when most of us realize that humans as a species are having 
a really big effect on the planet. The, the Anthropocene, no matter when you begin, it has begun. And we also realize that the benefits of those effects and the blame for those effects are spread unequally. Spread unequally because of human history. The benefits of the effects have spread to Europeans and um, North Americans mostly, some Asians, uh, and the blame for the effects probably should go to them too. But the, you know, the, the, the way that the international economic pie is cut directly benefits those countries and those civilizations that first adopted fossil fuel technology. And we want to believe that if we can observe our future coming, that if we recognize that we're headed for a sixth mass extinction event or in the middle of it, that we recognize that if we are uh, on the verge of a new geological epoch that probably will not be good for humans, that if we can see it and predict it and guess where things are going, that we can then also change course. But changing course is not simply a matter of knowing where we're going. Changing course is a political issue. It requires us to change how we organize our societies in dramatic ways. And to make that change, we need to have a story of how we got there. And this story is really hard to talk about. We're understanding more and more that the Earth system that we're involved in, the Earth system that we are affecting is enormously complex. It's a huge, wild, turbulent, interconnecting, um, you know, mass of, 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 of a ton of different factors that we're all changing at massive scales. Um, one understated point that people don't talk about when they talk about climate change is the role of complexity. The Holocene, the period of, of, of most of, of human civilization, is noted for being really invariable in its climate, really mild. Compare this with the Ice Ages that humans uh, evolved in. The Ice Ages were enormously variable. Uh, a single place would have wild swings in climate from year to year, which made settled communities almost impossible and kept human populations really, really low. The Holocene, this long period of, of slow human accumulation, is also a long period of, of really mild climates where things were really predictable. And we don't know exactly what makes the Holocene climate so stable. And because we don't know, and we know that we are making geological scale changes to the environment, it's really likely that we are going to kick ourselves out of the Holocene period climactic invariability. What happens when temperatures jump from 20 to 30 degrees in a single place? What happens to our food stocks? What happens to uh, uh, our, 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 our uh, massive fields of grain? when they are subjected one year to scorching temperatures and another to freezing. And this complexity is hard to understand. We cannot make good stories about it. There will always be doubt. There will always be naysayers. There will always be enough uncertainty to allow us to keep our heads in the sand. Morally, uh, a philosopher named Stephen Gardner has identified climate change as a perfect moral storm because it is global and intergenerational 
and complex. It is global, and so the causes and effects of climate change are dispersed. Uh, you know, the conquest of the Americas led to a decline of CO2 in Indonesia in the early 17th century, even though people in Indonesia probably did not even know what was happening. The explosion of a volcano in Indonesia in 1815 caused bad winters in Britain, even though nobody at the time connected it. The burning of a bit of fossil fuel today in suburban California will lead to climate change in China, and it is invisible. It's also intergenerational. These effects have massive time lags. Uh, a little bit of carbon dioxide released into the upper atmosphere will last for about five to 200 years. 25% of all of that carbon will last probably forever. But this means that our choices today don't affect us. They are part of a slow accumulation that will affect our children, and our grandchildren in obscure, complicated, vague ways that we do not even understand at the moment. And it's hard to see how individuals are responsible for this. It is hard to see how my choices personally affect this. I might use a plastic straw. It's hard to see how that choice of a plastic straw in my Diet Coke will have a world historical or even a geological effect on the level of a meteorite. And it's also hard to see how the political institutions that we have can solve this. The way that our politics are now are, you know, local and national, but very rarely global, and they're not really working. We're not really convinced that they represent us accurately, and we're not really convinced that they are up for the job. And yet, our knowledge of our species wide effects on the earth seem to demand that we have some kind of global species-wide politics. But these problems, and this is something that Gardner uh, talks about, these problems in conceptualizing climate change and understanding it ethically for ourselves leads us to ignore the problem, it leads for far too many turnoff points where we can simply say, well, it's too big, it's too slow, it's not my issue. It is uh, too easy for interested parties to confuse the issues, as has happened with climate change denialism, and it's too easy to have cognitive dissonance about the situation, to say that our local and, you know, lifetime-long moment of prosperity and goodwill, it's hard to see how that will lead to a species-wide environmental collapse. And this complexity and this moral difficulty is the reason why it's important to have a history of the Anthropocene, to tell the story of this movement in a way that includes people and the environment as things that uh, interact with one another, as we will be doing over the next couple months. Because as we tell our history, we usually tell it only about people. When we tell the story of America, it's usually George Washington and LBJ and uh, suffragettes and stuff like that. But it should also be a story of our relationship with rocks and the atmosphere and energy cycles and corn and pigs and the slow geology of the earth.
to make a story about people that will be able to have a politics that might solve climate change, we need to tell a history about how we got there. If we want humanity as a collective force to face the challenges of peak oil and peak phosphorus and the sixth mass extinction and inequality, we need to understand all of those issues from a deep historical perspective. And that is what we will be doing. Next week, I'm going to be starting the story with the Colombian exchange, with the moment when the seams of Pangaea were re reunited, when uh, corn and pigs and wheat and tomatoes and tobacco and people and microbes spread all across the world. Our first global moment, perhaps the moment that allowed for the accumulation of capital that would cause the Industrial Revolution a few hundred years later. I hope that you will join me and enjoy it. Thank you very much to everybody who listens. Thank you for those who share on social media. Thank you to our wonderful illustrator, Duncan Barton, and to uh, Jonathan Lear for our music. If you like the show, rate and review us on iTunes. Send me an email. Uh, do all those things that you do with podcasts that you like. I will speak to you guys next week. 